0: Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, the podcast about science fiction that committed unspeakable acts that were later erased from the timeline. (laughs) I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction author, and my most recent book is the Young Adult Space Fantasy Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak.
1: And I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction, and my forthcoming novel, coming in January, please pre-order, is called The Terraformers. Ooh, I can't wait for that book. It's
0: so amazing. Y'all are going to just, you're all in I for a treat. I can't
1: wait for it to be out there. Yay.
0: Okay. So today, we're going to be talking about Sweet weird which is a genre term I came up with recently that describes stories in which everything is as strange as a hundred razor blade mongooses. But some people are still kind and generous to each other, and we can still have chosen family. And later in the program, we'll be talking about speculative fiction's propensity to come up with new subgenres and other fancy terms for different types of storytelling that people are grooving on. Um, So, what makes us want to keep inventing new categories and new labels? Also, if you support us on Patreon, next week we'll have an audio extra in which we talk about the Descendants TV movies, which are part of the oeuvre of our beloved director-slash-choreographer, Kenny Ortega. We just recently finally watched the Descendants trilogy, and we have many thoughts. Speaking of Patreon... Did you know that that's entirely how this podcast comes to be? It is entirely independent. It's funded by you, our listeners, via Patreon. That is right. Oh my gosh. If you become a patron, you are making this podcast happen. You're buoying us up. You're supporting us. And with every episode, you get an audio extra every other week. Plus, you get access to our Discord channel where we hang out constantly. We're just in there all the time posting links and kind of arguing about random stuff and just chatting. Um, think about it. All of that could be yours for just a few bucks a month. And anything you give goes back into making our opinions even more correct. So find <laughs> us at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. And there's a cat kind of walking across my keyboard right now. So I apologize if there is disruption. <laughs> All right, let's get Sweet weird.
1: All right, so just like let's get straight to the info dump. Tell us what Sweet Weird is and where it came from and why. Okay, now. so this started and when. A- <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> and whomst and wherefore, <laughs> and whereupon, and Okay, river. I'm just like,
1: good. This is what I need. All right. So- <laughs> okay. <laughs> you may continue.
0: We're already getting very quirky, which I feel is appropriate for this this episode. So basically, this started as a throwaway comment in my writing advice book, Never Say You Can't Survive, which is mostly about other stuff. But in one chapter, I was talking about how weirdness can be a comfort and a solace in a time when everybody is trying to pretend that a totally bongo pants world makes sense. And I mentioned that I was seeing a lot of stories that were strange as all get out, but still featured warmth and kindness, whereas you might have expected weird storytelling to be kind of misanthropic and dark, like nothing makes any sense. So let's just be horrible. It's like, okay, it's like the difference between two TV shows that Mike McMahon worked on, Rick and Morty, which is a brilliantly weird show with a very bleak, kind of misanthropic sensibility. And then Mike McMahon also did Star Trek Lower Decks. And it's every bit as strange, but it features characters who have hearts of gold and really care about each other a lot. It has a very different kind of vibe than Rick and Morty, even though they share a lot of the same real estate. So after the book came out, people kind of asked me about that throwaway reference to Sweet Weird. And meanwhile, I was seeing more and more examples of it in pop culture. And, you know... The young adult trilogy that I'm just finishing up writing feels very sweet weird to me because it's extremely bizarre, but there's also a chosen family who are there for each other all the time. And a lot of the kind of emotional content is people taking care of each other and supporting each other.
1: Yeah, right now I am really appreciating stories about people being kind to each other. I think it's that, you know, when the world feels really scary and precarious, we just want stories that remind us of our connections to each other. And this is why, for example, you know, in the 1930s, we see a ton of screwball comedies and silly musicals. You know, people were really suffering. It was the Great Depression. There was a lot of political change. The rise of fascism was going on all over Europe. And people just wanted escape. And I think, you know, we're kind of back there. Like over the past few years, We're dealing with all kinds of precarity, political instability, pandemics, economic disasters, climate change disasters, and we're seeing something emerge that is similar to what happened in the 30s, except now we have these sort of gentle romances and comedies and adventures with chosen families.
0: Right. And I was just reading a whole kind of I've read actually several think pieces in the past week about like how disco is back because, you know, we want Thank that God. kind of happy vibe and that kind of like friendly, like shininess that is, you know. We had a lot of angst, and there's plenty of reasons for angst in the real world. Um, And, you know, I know a lot of people who are, for example, gravitating towards something like Ted Lasso, which explicitly bills itself as a show about capital K kindness. Like if you go to Apple TV, their big landing page says kindness is back. But, you know, Ted Lasso mostly takes place in a very cozy norm core version of the UK in spite of the occasional weird experiment like the Coach Beard episode. And, you know, as I said, right now we're living through a time when the world is a literal trash fire and authority figures are spouting actual nonsense. And part of how, why they're doing that is to say, I can say nonsense and things that literally make no sense. And you can't question me because I'm so powerful. And cruelty is kind of an organizing principle on which our organizations our institutions are working. So if I'm going to consume a story about people being kind and supportive and helping each other, I'd way rather see it take place in a world that is kind of surreal and logoreic. I'd be way more into Ted Lasso as a show if it occasionally rained eggplants with teeth in the middle of a soccer match.
1: That's totally season three of Ted Lasso, by the way, eggplants with teeth. So what are some examples of sweet, weird storytelling other than Ted Lasso?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I totally want to see that episode of Ted Lasso. So I'd say a big example that I've been thinking about a lot lately is the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which is a gloriously off-kilter story full of just wacky stuff, but it still made me cry my face off with its warm, friendly vibe about a family working some stuff out. It's a very kind of intimate, kind of happy... Not happy, but it's a very intimate kind of like... Heartfelt story. Yeah. Um, I also feel like the Guardians of the Galaxy movies have a real family feeling, and I'd also, with some caveats, include James Gunn's recent Peacemaker TV show. There's also a ton of animated TV shows, and I'll just list a couple: Adventure Time, Steven Universe, Summer Camp Island, The Owl House. I guess that's four, not a couple. I'd also <laughs> say that you know, Our Flag Means Death is both weird and and very sweet, and The Good Place also gets incredibly like just banana pants but is also has this sweetness to it and in books i'd mentioned you know becky chambers is robot monk books for sure along with rika aoki's the light from uncommon stars and a lot of people when we were talking about this online a lot of people mentioned books by tj clune sarah gailey and ursula vernon i'm just literally just scratching the surface here there's so much more
1: Yeah, I love that your list includes stories that are fantasy and science fiction, but also Our Flag Means Death, which is, I mean, it's heightened, but it's not directly fantasy. There's nothing that happens that directly defies the laws of physics. And, you know, Taika Waititi, who stars in Our Flag Means Death, he's also created two sweet, weird shows, um, What We Do in the Shadows, which is about dorky vampires, and the offspring of Von Helsing, who is a vampire hunter, who's also quite delightful and sweet, um, even though he has to kill vampires. And then there's also the spinoff from what we do in the shadows, Wellington Paranormal, um, which is another adorable, sweet, weird show about small town cops in Wellington, New Zealand, who are kind of going after various paranormal events, but they're very bumbling and kind of gentle and you know, not really, They're trying to do their jobs as best they can. But I'd also add that there's a whole tranche of stories that fit into Sweet Weird that are not realistic, but they take place in the real world, Um, especially romances. So there's the romantic comedies like the show Heartstopper, which is based on an incredible comic book, the movie Crush, which we just watched, both of which are kind of foregrounding queer romance, but also have very cute straight romances in them too. There's also the show Starstruck about a woman who accidentally starts dating a movie star, but she doesn't realize it because she doesn't watch action movies. That's like a very fairy tale premise. Like, mm-hmm. I accidentally started dating the prince, you know? Um, it has like shades of crazy rich Asians um, in it, but it's much goofier. Um, like, crazy rich Asians is just like, I'd say, straight up kind of rom com, whereas mm-hmm. um, Starstruck is weird. Like, the main character is a goofball. Mm -hmm. And so the question is really like, is sweet weird kind of a know it when you see it thing? Or is there sort of a pattern?
0: I would say it's definitely an aesthetic or a vibe as much as anything else. And it's just in, you know, I don't really want to like, set boundaries about what can and cannot be considered sweet weird. I feel like it's just people can decide for themselves what to label how and you know, I would say is like, is off the wall stuff happening? And are the main characters still showing kindness to each other? Um, you know, so it's a label that might fit if those two, the answer to both of those questions is yes. And you know, <laughs> yeah. I when I when I sort of coined this term, I wanted to talk about just some of my favorite stories that I've been loving recently, and also a way to think about these books that I've been working on. And I have been happy that others seem to have been embracing it so far, like M.R. Carey, aka Mike Carey, one of my favorite writers, uh, said on Twitter that he considers the thing that he's working on right now to be sweet weird. And that was a happy thing for me. Because because, like I said, I love his work.
1: Yeah, I mean, I also like the fact that the way you're talking about this, you're like, I'm not gatekeeping this. Like, you can call whatever you want, sweet weird, if you want to, or you don't have to call anything sweet weird. Like, part of right. I think part of the ethos of sweet weird is like, just be chill. Like, y- mm-hmm. you you don't have to be anything really. Like, if if you want to do it, fine. Um, but I, I have a question that I think. I mean, this is less of a me question and more of a question that I could imagine coming up as people are thinking about Sweet Weird, which is, so are you thinking that this is something where people are just like, it's a story about people who are just unrelentingly nice and like nothing bad ever happens? Yeah, I
0: think that that would be really boring. I mean, obviously. Yeah. Full, like. There, there are stories in which nothing major happens. Like, obviously, I mentioned the, the monk and robot stories, and those are not boring. Those are incredibly fascinating. So I don't want to say that nothing bad happening is... But actually, bad things happen in those books. They're just very minor bad things, usually. Yeah. Uh, I think that, you know, I personally like a story where really bad things happen and people have to deal with it. And it's often an occasion for people to kind of take care of each other. So I mentioned earlier, I mentioned Steven Universe, a show which features, you know, mass murder on an almost unimaginable scale and body horror and some major, major trauma, which as the show goes on, it gets deeper and deeper into that trauma. And I think most of the other examples I brought up do include some events that might be considered war crimes or major atrocities. And, you know, my own young adult books, are just chock full of horror, including some really intense body horror. So I think that that's kind of where the weird part of Sweet Weird comes in. Shit gets really awful sometimes, and it's senseless. That's why it's weird, in a sense, is that senselessly terrible things are happening, and the only thing we have to hold on to is each other.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of what we were talking about um, at the beginning of the episode about wanting, you know, stories that are kind of a balm or an escape. But the thing about escapism is that I don't think it really works unless the story also gives you a really strong sense of what you're escaping from. You can't really have a story that's escapist and healing without you know, significantly exploring the thing that's making your characters really upset or the thing that's making your readers mm-hmm. upset. Um, and so I think a story which was unrelentingly nice, I can't even imagine what that would be, like maybe Mr. Rogers or something like that, um, like a, one of the fantasies where he kind of goes into the, the fantasy realm and Mr. Rogers and the little train.
0: I always think that that's very dystopian. Like they're just trapped in this realm under this like dictatorship of King Friday. Anyway, sorry, go on.
1: Yeah. I mean, so maybe that's not, I I think that's unintentionally dystopian perhaps, but you know, I think that at periods of in history when, when we are feeling so upset, you know, we, we obviously crave chosen family and supportive friends you know, more when the world feels like a surreal nightmare. And I think that's why romance is a big part of the Sweet Weird aesthetic. But also there's a ton of stories within Sweet Weird that explore the romance of friendship, which makes me just so happy because I really want stories that are about the beauty of friendship and how we can have profound connections to each other that don't involve like conventional ideas of marriage or like pairing up into an isolated monogamous unit. And I especially think that this is important right now because as you said, like sweet weird is an antidote to a world that feels chaos and bonkers and random as opposed to a world, say, where everything feels like too orderly and too clamped down. And friendship is a way to kind of make sense of things. It's like, okay, I know who my friends are. Um, Even if I can't understand politics, and I don't understand the supply chain, and I'm like, what the hell is happening with the latest variant Mm -hmm. on the latest pandemic? I know my friends, and my friends know Mm -hmm. me, and I feel seen by them.
0: Yeah, and I'm a huge proponent of like romantic friendship. And like, and and romantic, like family building, chosen family. I think that I would love to see us expand our ideas of romance beyond just like some kind of monogamous pairing off kind of thing. And like into just like, yep, you can have many relationships that are satisfying and fulfilling. And yeah, obviously, I crave stories about communities that hold each other up when the walls start melting. And I'll always have a special place in my heart for a show like Blake 7, where the main characters kind of snarl at each other for 52 episodes (laughs) until, spoiler alert for a 40-year-old show, they finally murder each other. But right now, in the middle of a slow motion apocalypse where fascists are weaponizing nonsense to fuel their rise, I kind of desperately need stories that let me know that we actually can take care of each other in the middle of an unreal shitscape.
1: Yeah, it really, it's funny that these are stories that are kind of surreal oftentimes that are an antidote to surrealism. So it's kind of like fighting weaponized surrealism with like, Gentle, kind surrealism. <laughs> like we're yeah. all in the, we're all in the realm of absurdity, but like the fact is that you can have gentle, kind, absurdist chaos, um and you can also have the kind of chaos that makes it impossible for people to understand their own needs and makes it impossible for them to to see their community for what it is.
0: Yeah, and I find order really oppressive right now. I think that you know, the notion of order is I think of cops, I think of institutions that are trying to keep us down. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's order and then there's structure. Um, and you know, structure can be very nice, but order is not always. <laughs> order is not always the best way to impose structure, I guess. Um, now now I've gotten into like deep abstraction. So are you just gonna write nothing but sweet weird from now on? No, I
0: don't think so. I mean, my next adult novel, which I'm halfway through writing, is currently not looking particularly sweet weird, although it's still cooking a lot could change i'm not even only consuming sweet weird right now i mean you know i've been i've been catching up on the umbrella academy which i don't think fits into the sweet weird label although there are sweet moments here and there but then there are times when the world is just too freaking much and i just want to pick up a squirrel girl comic and just luxuriate in how gonzo and yet how good natured it is You know, and I've been happy that people seem to be embracing the idea of Sweet Weird, but I'm also glad that people want to argue about it because that's part of the fun of coining new genre terms like this. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about why the speculative fiction world does seem to constantly come up with so many different ways to describe what we're doing and why it's really fun to argue about these terms.
1: Today we want to recommend a podcast called Curious State, hosted by Doug Fraser. If you love asking weird questions and finding magical nuggets of knowledge, you'll like this podcast. Every week, Doug asks a question like, could we have domesticated a T-Rex? How does cyanide kill you? Or what is reality TV doing to us? With help from authors, experts, and various other people, Doug endeavors to answer it in 20 minutes or less. You can listen to curious state on apple podcasts spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts so speculative fiction has a long history of creating new subgenres just like every week there's a new subgenre or there's a new aesthetic or a new term of art um in fact we just recently did an episode about the rise of dark academia which is a kind of aesthetic And I'm just curious, how often do you think a new subgenre comes along and really takes off?
0: You know, I feel like it's every several years, but there have been periods where new subgenres were just springing up and then periods where there wasn't so much of that. But you know, For example, in 1982, this writer named Bruce Bethke coined the term cyberpunk, which came to describe this already burgeoning class of stories about futuristic worlds featuring artificial intelligence and oppressive technocracies. And then in 1987, K.W. Jeter coined the term steampunk to describe a wave of novels that were set in Victorian times and featured steam-powered technology, often way in advance of the technology that actually existed back then. And, you know, one thing that I was thinking about the other day is the term paranormal romance, mm. which was coined in the 1990s, but it really took off in the early 2000s, according to this research paper I found. And it ended up becoming a huge genre in publishing. And I think it was also describing a set of stories that had been existing for a long time before that. Mm-hmm. And I'm just scratching the surface here, I feel like you get these terms that kind of come to define a set of stories that are kind of, you know, fit within a larger genre, but they have a life of their own. And then there are subgenres that kind of spring up without anybody really kind of proclaiming it one day. Like I'd say that at this point, blue collar space opera is a subgenre. It's inspired by the movie Alien, but also sparked by recent stuff like The Expanse books and TV series. And I've lost count of how many novels, shows, movies, and comics I've seen recently about working stiffs in space, but I could not tell you for the life of me who coined the term blue-collar space opera.
1: Yeah. There's also Space Sweepers, that great Korean movie. Oh um,
0: my God. It was that so was great. So,
1: yeah. And that's just like straight up. It's like Space Sweepers, literally the name of a blue-collar job combined with space. Um, So yeah, I think that it's true that sometimes there are these trends that don't get named or that are only kind of casually named, like blue collar space opera, which is not really a thing. Like I've never heard people talk about that in the same way they talk about like steampunk, for example. Um, I mean, people talk about it, but it's not like a marketing term, really. Right. Which actually, I mean, a lot of these do end up being marketing terms, and that's kind of how for sure. So what about when someone creates a label that doesn't actually turn into a huge subgenre? What about that?
0: I feel like that actually happens probably more often. And I'm going to, I apologize to the people who I'm going to pick on, but I'm going to name a couple examples. You know, after cyberpunk became a big thing, one of the founders of cyberpunk, Bruce Sterling, helped to create another kind of notion called slipstream. Bruce Sterling wrote this amazing slipstream manifesto, which I was personally just massively influenced by as a baby writer. It just changed my life. So in that sense, and I think it changed a lot of other people's lives. So it was, it was huge. I mean, I
1: was I was in grad school when it came out, studying English literature, and people were talking about it there too. Like in an English department, people were like, "Oh yes, the slipstream manifesto, very important." Duh, duh, duh.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And Slipstream was this attempt to put a more genre bending strangeness into speculative fiction and kind of merge it with experimental literary writing, which is all extremely my jam. And, you know, I, again, it was hugely influential. And there have been some Slipstream anthologies uh, and some journals, which I. I cherished by copies of. But at the same time, I've never seen publishers being like, this book is slipstream in the way that they might be like, this book is steampunk. I don't feel like it's become a term that's kind of crossed over into being like a marketing term or into being something that like people will affirmatively like label a book that in order to kind of get you to read it.
1: Yeah, I I do want us to keep thinking um, as we're talking about this about how much marketing terminology influences what we think of as a successful subgenre. Like is it something that you can go to the bookstore and find a section that has that label? Or oh, yeah, you, can, you know, find it you know in the description on Amazon or also um, speaking of other types of uh, subgenres that didn't quite take off but were still influential. Jeff Ryman and a number of other people tried to spark a thing called mundane science fiction in the early 2000s. Um, Jeff Ryman wrote a really influential manifesto about mundane science fiction. It was a little bit like the Dogma 95 idea that had come out in 1995 um, in the movies. And that was a filmmaking movement um, that was started by the Danish directors, Lars von Trier and Thomas Vinderberg, who wanted to get away from like studio driven, hyper commercial movies that were like packed with special effects and technical gimmicks. And the idea was they would shoot on location, there'd be no filters, everything would take place in real time. It was really hard to do. There were only a few Dogma 95 movies and even they kind of broke some of their own rules. And this kind of is what happened with mundane science fiction too, which is mundane science fiction's goal was to stick to realism and plausibility so that meant like no faster than light travel no teleportation no aliens no mind uploads and that kind of thing like anything that seemed implausible based on contemporary technology couldn't really be part of mundane science fiction and i can't think of a single novel or story in another medium that actually stuck to all of the rules of mundane science fiction, just like with Dogma 95 in film, maybe there were some extremely near future science fiction that did stick to it. But the problem is that the idea of plausibility is such a moving target, right? It depends on which scientists and which tech experts you're talking to and listening to, but it also depends on like how quickly things are changing in a particular field. So as a result, mundane science fiction became one of those subgenres or maybe aesthetics that existed as an aspiration and an inspiration but it was just really hard to do in practice so that's one thing that can happen to a subgenre is that people really like the idea but it's such a rigid framework that you can't really impose it on more than a few stories
0: Yeah, and I think that that is one pitfall, and that is one reason why you don't want to, like, it's hard to be prescriptive or hard to be, like, Mm -hmm. overly, like, rule-based when you're coming up with these things. Cyberpunk and Steampunk are both kind of, like, this is a vibe, and, you know, do what you want with it kind of a little bit. Yeah,
1: it's very loosey-goosey. It's like, okay, does it have, like, computers? in your head and some corporations, are it great?
0: (laughs) Right, kind of, yeah. And, you know, we could be here for ages listing all of the kind of terms and subgenres and aesthetics and things that have come out in the last few decades. Uh, It feels like every day there are more genre terms popping up. I'm personally super excited about the idea of Hope Punk, uh, which is a term coined by Alexandra Rowland and we did an episode about it a while ago and I think you know hope I see people talking about hope punk all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's gonna get to the where it's too soon to know if it's gonna get to the point of like being up there with cyberpunk and steampunk and other the other the other punks but it's it's this term that you know it's definitely gotten a lot of currency and it's it's a very helpful term for talking about a particular kind of story. I'm excited that we're just we're still coining a lot of new terms
1: yeah, me too so, why do we like creating new terminology so much? I was I was recently on an episode of Tom Merritt's podcast called "A Word," and we were talking about the word "category" and why why people who are fans of science fiction like love categorizing things um, and love coming up with terms for like different types of fandom and and it was. You know, we came up with a lot of possibilities, and I'm wondering, like, why do you think that this keeps happening?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's just it's fun. I mean, it's like when I was 18 <laughs> and I had this terrible That's an job. Easy it's fun. I mean, yeah, yeah it, that's that's my answer. When I was 18, I had this terrible job in a warehouse where they made the mistake of giving me a label gun, and I just went around putting whimsical labels on everything, and that was like the one thing that got me through my long days in this warehouse <laughs> stacking boxes. I feel like it comes out of two extremely virtuous impulses. You either love a particular type of story and want to be able to talk about why and how we love it, or you're feeling as though there's a kind of storytelling that I crave. And I'm not seeing enough of it. And so I'm going to invent a term that describes what I wish I was seeing more of. And it can be a mixture of those two things. I love a particular type of writing that I'm already seeing some of. And I, if I group it together and kind of like label it, maybe, you know, I can get to see more of it.
1: Yeah. I also think that, I I mean, and this is something I talked about with Tom Merritt was like, it is also a form of gatekeeping too. It's like a way of saying like, these are my, you know, like, these are my people and like, don't get your narrative, like in our narrative, because we don't want you to bring in what we consider to be fantasy into what we consider to be science fiction or whatever silly debate people are having. There is often, especially in very old school entrenched um, fandoms, there is this ancient debate between fantasy and science fiction. Um, And, you know, in the last 20 years, I feel like almost everyone who loves speculative fiction knows that fantasy and science fiction are like really the same thing um, and that the line between them is pretty arbitrary um, and that moving the line around is where you get um, great new stories from. I I was also gonna say that a lot of these new terms now um, are coming out of fan fiction communities that are using different hashtags and categories. And that impulse has carried over into the rest of the writing world, especially because tons of, of commercial writers are now coming out of fandom. And I think that's because, to go back to what you were saying earlier, it's as readers, we wanna know what we're getting into. We kind of wanna have a name for the thing that we crave and this is really true right now because so many of us are using stories for comfort or like therapy and you don't want to invest hours in a book or a tv show and then discover that it's like all about how people you love are garbage if like what you want to believe is that your friends are good (laughs) and then the story's like surprise they're garbage which is like a perfectly legitimate story and also true like friends can turn out to be garbage but like if i'm looking for something that will make me feel better. I don't want to like suddenly discover, you know, like hashtag all friends are garbage. Or I don't want like a story that I entered into thinking it was going to be sweet, weird, like suddenly going all edgelord and like, you know, just like everyone torturing each other. So sometimes these kinds of labels are like, like, whatever the opposite of a trigger warning would be, they're like, uh, you know what I mean? They're like, oh, you can expect this nice thing to happen, or this this desired thing to happen. Whereas like a trigger warning is like, by the way, this thing that you don't like might be in here.
0: Yes. I have been spending a lot of time on Tumblr again lately, which feels like I've stepped through a time warp, but uh, I feel as though there's just a kind of self-awareness that comes from uh, out of online fandoms that is just, it's delightful. And it goes along with being hyper aware of certain tropes in fiction and wanting to see those tropes executed well. And often These terms, like sweet weird or cyberpunk or, you know, whatever, nose flute, are just (laughs) baskets of tropes. And I really do think that part of the fun—and I'm going to keep saying it's fun—part of the fun of coining these terms is— getting to argue about them in a hopefully friendly, constructive way. I was being tongue-in-cheek when I chose to call my Sweet Weird essay a manifesto, which was maybe me kind of overreaching a little bit. But I was definitely thinking of things like Bruce Sterling writing his Slipstream manifesto, which blew the top off of young Charlie Jane's head, or Jeff Ryman writing his mundane science fiction manifesto. And I, I feel like this is one of the things that gives speculative fiction its speculative frisson. The fact that we're constantly coining and reinventing and debating all of these labels.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is really fun to debate this stuff. It ultimately makes us more savvy, you know, readers and audiences. Um, we, We kind of know what we like, but we also can engage really fully with these stories. And especially because fanfic is all about not just engaging with a story by like consuming it and then walking away. It's like, no, you take in the story and then you make the story your own and you continue the Mm -hmm. story. You pick up on threads in the story. You might actually take a story that's like a straight up edgelord story and be like, oh, I'm actually going to have like a little um, side quest that turns sweet weird and take these two characters who normally... Um, would just only fight with each other and kidnap each other and, like, torment each other and be like, actually, they're secretly boyfriends. And, like, this is the fun time when they both went to the magical lake together. And, like, you know, mm-hmm. only, like, soft things live at the lake. And, like, they just kissed a lot. And, like, and then they went back to, like, murder and stuff like that, whatever. But, like, you know, there there's this real joy in um, being able to to tease apart a story that you like and, mm-hmm. and reclaim it. And, yeah, I just want to kind of underscore what you were saying about how a lot of the debates we see in fandom over these things are lovingly sort of, people are participating in them in a loving way. Like, mm-hmm. we love to overanalyze and geek out. And, like, yeah, people will get heated um, about it. But I think in a best-case scenario, it's just because... It's a way of letting off steam. You know, we're just arguing about fiction. And then I do think that, yes, sometimes these kinds of debates can get toxic and can become really cruel. And that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about, like, bad things that happen in fandom. We're talking about, like, the fun part of just, like, okay... I have identified 60 different aesthetics and like here's what they are. Okay. And like VaporWave is over here, and like dark academia is over here. And then there's like Dark Goblin Academia and like Vapor mm. Academia. <laughs> like um, you know, whatever, right? Um I actually Vaporwave Academia would be amazing. Like I'd love to see that. I want anyway, it. I crave that. I know, like hashtag Vaporwave Academia. So yeah, I think I think that this is the joy of fandom is, like, categorizing.
0: Yeah, and I think it's it's a positive impulse. It's part of how we make things our own, and it's part of what made me a bigger fan. Like, when I first discovered people arguing about stuff on Usenet and on, you know, various message boards and just, you know, getting to see people just hashing out their opinions about stuff, it just made me love the things I loved in a different way. And I think it's important not to take any of this too seriously. I think it's, you yes. know... Like, none of this is is like brain surgery or rocket science or whatever. It only gets bad if we start shaming people for liking what they like or for coloring outside the lines. And, you know, genres, subgenres, and other labels are meant to be descriptive, not prescriptive. And it would suck if someone was like, ah, it's not a cyberpunk story because nobody is wearing reflective sunglasses (sighs) or whatever. And, you know, it just, that's, I don't like policing other people's tastes or or categorization or what labels you use. But yeah, to return to what we were saying, this is why I love nerd culture most of the time, because we can invent a new buzzword in the morning and be having a spirited debate about it by tea time.
1: Yes, I love that too. I feel like every category we come up with is a category that is temporary. And the fact that these are temporary categories that are always changing That's what makes this tea time so delightful.
0: Now I want tea and cakes. Okay, (laughs) so... You've been listening to Our Opinions Are Correct, and uh, if you just stumbled upon us, you can find us wherever podcasts are found. If you like us, please do leave a review on Apple or wherever because it helps a lot. Also, we are on Patreon as we mentioned earlier mm-hmm. at uh, Patreon.com/slash Our Opinions Are Correct, and your support uh, really helps a lot. And you get to be part of like a really vibrant community. We're also on Twitter at O O A C Pod. We're just so grateful to our heroic brilliant producer veronica simonetti also thanks so much to chris palmer for our amazing music and thanks again to you for your support we'll be back in two weeks with another episode next week we'll have an audio extra and if you're a patron we'll see you on discord bye